everybody, it's Mittens, and this is another episode of Supernatural George, the very first episode of season two of Supernatural, In My Time of Dying, which I have to mention is still my favorite song probably ever, so good to know. This is also an excellent episode. It's incredibly well directed by Kim Manners, and of course written by Eric Kripke. But this is also the point where the true, I've talked for years on Tumblr about the spiral narrative of the show, how the plot points just keep circling around and around and around and ever tightening and ever widening spirals to encompass everything. But this is really the beginning of that. Season one was setting up the universe for us and finding its footing as a show and a narrative and a story and developing the characters so that we could identify with them and understand them and their lives and who they were in their universe. And this is really where the bigger narrative kicks in and become something more than just us watching these boys learn to hunt and try to find their dad and figure out their own little personal problems and stuff that don't feel like there's a bigger cosmic purpose. Like even the demon that targeted them, it's just a revenge mission to them at that point. It's not this cosmic ordeal that we begin to see the bigger picture of it towards the end of season one with the whole cult and learning about the yellow-eyed demon's plans for Sam and the other children that we don't even learn about until the season finale of season one. So it feels almost like they hadn't quite figured out where they were taking this story, but season two, they really begin to lay it down. This is the part of the story that you'll see come up again and again throughout the entire series with the same themes and the same issues and the same dilemmas that they face and the same choices they have to make, but with different options available to them at every point in the road, because every time they hit that part of the spiral again, the circumstances are different. But this is where that begins, really. And speaking of beginnings, I unfortunately am beginning this quite late tonight because As Bobby says in the very first line he has in all of season two, the very first words we hear in season two are, there's a storm coming. Well, (laughs) there was a storm here tonight, and I would not have been able to record with so much thunder. (laughs) It would have been ridiculous. But yeah, it's finally settled down, and I can hear myself think over the rain and thunder. And so (laughs) apologies if this episode ends up feeling a little bit rushed. I don't want it to, but I also don't want to be awake until dawn recording it. So (laughs) you're welcome for not recording with the thunderstorm in the background, even if it might have been thematically relevant. (laughs) It would have been bad. Before we really get into the episode, there are a couple of deleted scenes in this episode that are interesting because they introduce a plot line or like a side plot that never showed up during Dean's time as a ghost before or disembodied spirit or whatever, before he discovers what's going on. He sees the same bloodied man calling out for help and like grabbing onto him. And he sees him in two different circumstances in the hospital before he meets up with Tessa. The second time he sees this man right after that is when Tessa 
starts calling out for him. So this poor guy had to go through makeup and get all bloody and like he had gunshots in his chest and <laughs> like scream in the hallway and had two relatively minor scenes with Dean, but still had to go through all of that to record those scenes. And then they just cut the guy out completely. Like he didn't even exist because it was really more of a something to throw Dean off balance in the episode to show that he's trying to figure out what's going on and, and is spooked by this, by seeing this recurring vision of this bloodied man just popping up randomly. But there's no narrative consistency to why he would do be popping up like that. That's not like ghost behavior. It would just have been something else that Tessa the Reaper was trying to show Dean to give him clues or whatever, because as we will learn later, Reapers can make humans see whatever they want and can control their perception of reality. So regardless of what who this guy was or why he was appearing, it doesn't really add anything. It just asks questions that the show then refuses to answer. So I'm glad they cut this guy's two scenes out, but they are there. If you want to watch them, they're on the DVDs of season two. We also have 22 pages of the script via the casting sides for Tessa and the janitor slash Azazel. So you can go and read those if you'd like. I actually have not had a chance to read them because I just remembered that we had them like two seconds ago. So (laughs) I forgot to reread them because honestly, we're getting to the part of the show where my tag for episodes gets longer and I actually fell down rabbit holes reading my own tags for this, the meta posts in my own tag on my blog for this episode. So that's probably going to be something that happens a lot more. And I'm probably going to have to resist the urge to read, like when we get to later seasons, the urge to read through like 40 pages of stuff on an episode. But this episode luckily only has five pages of stuff. But it's still like swallowed my whole evening during the thunderstorms. So at least I had something to do. (laughs) But as usual, I will link those casting sides in my post and I'll add any commentary to my post if I have a chance to read them before posting them. And so there might be additional things in there that I want to say based on those casting sides, but I don't know yet. So it's a mystery to all of us. We'll all be surprised. This episode is also the first time we meet Tessa the Reaper, who, as our stand-in for the office of death in the show, and the concept of death in general in the show, and Dean's previous connection with death, and the fact that he evaded a Reaper several times in Season 1, Episode 12, Faith, that he's already living on borrowed time, technically. Tessa seems to know that as well, and... We begin to learn about Dean's relationship with death. That is such an important thing for me. The way Dean's character arc connects with death and the concept of death and the relationship Dean has with death throughout the series is important to his growth as a character. Death teaches Dean a lot of lessons. This is also an episode where it becomes really clear that Dean is the central character here and that the major emotional plots revolve around Dean while the 
apocalyptic big A plot stuff revolves around Sam and what happens to Sam and what Sam does and chooses. But the emotional connection to the show is now through Dean. He's our point of view character. He's our audience standing character. But what happens to Dean is important to us and is central to our understanding of this entire show. We're seeing everything through his eyes. We are supposed to sympathize with him. He's the character we identify with while Sam is having all this special children nonsense happen to him. This episode really centers Dean as our emotional grounding to the show. They could have killed Dean off here and it would have been a totally different show. He refuses to die. He's like, no, that's not going to happen. First, we have to get through the road so far segment, and I'm forced to listen to Ted Nugent, which is unfortunate, (laughs) but it happens. Basically, we go through the highlights of season one. It starts off with Bobby saying there's a storm coming and you, you boys are right in the middle of it. Well, yeah, they are. And that was the season finale of season one. So we're jumping right back into where we left off. They go through some of the monsters. They show them fighting and killing monsters and learning how to hunt and everything. And then they introduce John into the story, not through any of the abandonment or him ignoring them through most of the season, but through them discovering the cult and understanding the importance of the cult in episode 20 of season one. So it jumps right to the end there for John, John's entrance into the show and their final battle with the demon in John in the cabin that was some of the final scenes of the season finale jumps right back in there Sam choosing not to kill John to kill the demon and now we're about to see the fallout and consequences of that because there was the bad moon rising at the end of season one well there's still a bad moon rising and Sam is still wearing the stupid red polo shirt and (laughs) bad things are still happening so we go right back to where we left off at the end of the last episode where they're in their smashed up car and the, dri- the demonically possessed driver of the semi gets out, saunters over to the Impala, rips the driver's door off the hinges and tosses it aside like it's nothing. As soon as he does, he sees that Sam is pointing the Colts at him. He cocks the gun and the demon's all cocky like, oh, you're not going to shoot me. You're saving that bullet. And Sam's like, am I? Am I really? You know, I'm not going to let you kill my family here. Just I'm going to kill you first. And the demon thinks twice about it and decides it's not worth the risk and vacates the body. And the man is like really confused. He's like, did I do this? Did I do this? So he's poor thing. He's freaking out that he may have killed these people. The next thing we know, it's daytime. Yeah, that's our big scene of it was night and now it's day. They get life flighted to the hospital. Sam's the only one who's conscious, really. And he's just asking if everybody else is okay, and clearly they are not. The next thing we see is Dean suddenly sitting up, waking up in the hospital, trying to get his bearings. He slides out of bed and starts looking around, calling out, trying to figure out where John and Sam are, what happened. He goes down the stairs, you know, that iconic scene in that stairwell that is used in so many episodes of Supernatural. We don't exactly know what's happening yet, but... He doesn't seem to run into anybody, and when he finally does, 
he can't seem to get through to anybody. He people don't aren't noticing him and he's not able to interact with people. What on earth is going on? He's very distressed. He runs back upstairs, back to the room where he came from, only to find himself lying in bed, unconscious and hooked up to machines, making him breathe and stuff. He is very not okay. And he's not in his body. I've talked for years about how exit signs are used in this show, like warning signs. And this is, as Dean's walking through the hallway, very prominently, like taking up a quarter of the screen is a great big exit sign. Like, this is your way out, Dean. You're going to be shown a way out. And he's just not going to take it. But the other interesting thing is there's two other signs visible in this shot, partially cut off at the top of the screen is the word obstetrics. So why is he walking towards a ward, you know, the birth ward? It's kind of interesting. It's like he has a choice, exit versus, you know, rebirth. So, and right in the middle is pathology. So it's just an interesting combination of signs to have in a hallway that Dean is walking through trying to figure out what's going on. Like, am I dying? Am I being reborn? And as Dean, the horror of what Dean's situation is sinks in, we cut to the title card. We come right back, though, to Dean staring at himself as Sam finally comes in. And Dean is really relieved to see him that he's not alone here in this horrible limbo he's trapped in. But Sam is here. And of course, Sam, the one with psychic powers who has shown that his ability to connect with dying people and dead people. Of course, Sam will be the one that Dean's able to communicate with and will hear him and understand him. But no, Sam may be a little more sensitive than most people, but he's not picking up what Dean is laying down for the most part here. This is where we begin to see the brilliance of how this episode was directed. That, while Sam can't pick up really what Dean is saying, he's like not like seeing Dean or hearing him directly. This episode shows us a connection, like something that Sam might not be consciously picking up on, but is reaching him still from Dean. And it's all done with camera angles and the music, the not even music, but just the sound effects that they're using in these scenes. The doctor comes into the room. Dean's asking Sam questions about what happened and if they're, John's okay and what, you know, how he's doing and whatever. And Sam's not answering him. But the doctor comes in and answers these questions for Dean, tells him that John is conscious, that they can go see him now. And Sam asks, well, what about my brother? And the doctor explains how severely injured he is with his brain injury and uses the phrase, if he wakes up. They're not sure at all that Dean will even ever regain consciousness after his injuries. So they don't know if he'll ever recover. And even if he does wake up, they're not expecting great things from him after this because his brain is swelling. This is not something you just bounce back from. Dean is upset by this revelation and is like, no, you're not, I'm going to be fine. And yells out to Sam, you're going to go find a hoodoo priest and lay some mojo on me. 
And during Dean's words, we see Sam's face in profile in the foreground. And we see Dean in the background. And there's like light shining on Sam's face and like a slight ringing sound effect that lets you know that Sam is not getting these words. Sam is not consciously picking up that Dean is talking to him. But something about Dean's emphasis on these words is getting through to Sam. I need to talk about a post that is an excerpt from the official companion book for season two, talking about how the ghost rules are complicated. And it's a talking to Kim Manners and saying how the rules of ghosts only exist inside Eric Kripke's head. And it only makes sense some of the times, but basically this entire post, I'll link it, boils down to every ghost is different. And then Eric Kripke says his serious answer is the rules adjust slightly based on what you're trying to say in an episode dramatically. So Kripke's saying right up front, When a ghost can do something or can't do something, it's largely because it makes sense within the dramatic confines of this episode and what the narrative is trying to get across in this episode. And it's not like there's some broad body of rules that govern ghost behavior. I mean, there is to an extent, but like in this episode, Dean is unable to open and close doors. And Kripke specifically had them reshoot a bunch of scenes because it had Dean, ghosty Dean, opening and closing doors. And Kripke's logic was other people in the hospital would see these doors opening and closing by themselves and freak out. That That's not something somebody can just walk past, you know. So in this episode, Dean can't open and close doors, even though he can. And also it took away from the dramatic moment of him smashing the water glass when he full on swayzied it, but little things like that that dictate what a ghost can and can't do are often just stylistic or thematic choices for an episode. So when you say, geez, why can't that ghost do XYZ because this previous ghost did, you have to try and find an in-universe explanation for it when oftentimes the answer is Kripke just thought it worked thematically for this ghost to be able to do that. Sorry. (laughs) So trying to come up with an in-universe explanation to tie everything together and make it make sense. I mean, largely we can say that there's a learning curve to being a ghost and the show does explore that later in season, what is it? Season seven? Whenever. It's very much later. Yes, late season seven with Bobby learning how to ghost the learning curve is often steep and even it even explores it in uh, season four when Sam and Dean are trying to stop Alistair from breaking a seal and killing reapers and they end up having to learn how to be ghosts again. So it's often not consistent just because of plot, but they try overall to at least explain the internal logic of it, even if it doesn't seem to have any. Sometimes it's just we, we needed that ghost not to be able to do that. Or we needed that ghost not to have to confront that. Or whatever. For thematic or production reasons. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to share here. As Dean learns how to ghost himself. And Kim Manners learns how to shoot Sam's perception of Dean here. Letting us know that Sam is hearing something. And that there's some 
connection happening here, even if it's not on a conscious level and even if it's not word for word he's picking up from Dean, because this phrase that Dean just said to him, you know, find a hoodoo priest and lay some mojo on me, is something that Sam will repeat. For now, though, they're going to go lament the doctor's lack of confidence in Dean's recovery as we go talk to John. And Sam's going to yell at John some, which, you know, honestly. After Sam explains to John that the doctors aren't confident about Dean's recovery, Sam comes out with that hoodoo priest and lay some mojo on him line. And then he kind of like wrinkles his forehead up and his eyebrows like he he's like that. Why did I say that almost, you know, but it's like, well, we saw why he said it, because he's he's picking up what Dean's laying down, even if he doesn't realize it consciously. His little tiny bit of psychic power is leaking through here. Either that or he's just really sensitive to Dean in particular, because most of Sam's psychic gifts have to do with the yellow-eyed demon and other special children. That's who he tends to connect psychically with, never Dean before. But clearly, out of stress and out of Dean's emphatic focus on Sam, Sam is picking up a little bit of that too. And here we go with the beginning of the end of the extremely problematic behavior of John Winchester. Sam wants to investigate, find someone to heal Dean just like they did before. And there's the reference to faith and how he found that faith healer that healed Dean before. And John is saying, we may not be able to find anyone. He's like, I'll look, I will, you know, turn over every stone, but we may not be able to find someone to heal Dean. And it's like, why is he setting it up for this to be a loss? I mean, I get why, because he's trying to be realistic here, but there's a lot that's going to happen in this episode that is going to make it very frustrating for me to talk about John Winchester in large doses. In this scene, Sam and John just continue to butt heads. As soon as John is like, yeah, I'll do everything I can to save Dean, this very next question is, so where's the cult? And Sam's like, your son is dying and you're just worried about the cult. And he's like, you're just worried about a revenge mission instead of saving your son. And I get Sam's bias is to see John that way. But honestly, John has a point here. Having the cult is the thing that the demon literally just tried to kill them all for. So maybe it's important to know where that thing is. Because I doubt the demon has just given up and decided that, oh, never mind. I I don't want to kill you anymore. And I don't want to get that gun from you more than I want to live. So, you know, (laughs) sorry. I don't think that's how it works. So John is right. And Sam's mind is only on Dean instead of also on this demon there's no reason that it would want to stop hunting them at this point. And they are still hunting it. And if it shows up in the hospital, they're as weak as they've ever been. They're as vulnerable as they've ever been. Dean's unconscious for crying out loud. John's still in a hospital bed and Sam is still bloodied. Yeah. This gun is their only defense against this thing. Maybe it's a good idea to make sure it's not like in the twisted wreckage of the car that got smashed and pushed off the road. Like, maybe that's a bad place to leave it. <laughs> and just that, just, just saying. But Sam confirms that is where he left it. And 
that Bobby is coming to pick it up and haul the car off before the authorities open the trunk and discover there's an arsenal in there, which is good thinking. I do think it's significant, though, that John says to Sam, that gun may be our only card. He doesn't say our only card for what? Like, to to defend themselves against the demon? Or what actually happens in this episode? Sam does not realize that John is still talking about saving Dean. That John is already working out this plan, hoping to trade the gun for Dean's life. And that he took it to heart that he would rather save his family than get that revenge because once they trade that gun they have no way to kill the demon anymore and they're back to square one but at least they have each other maybe this is the thing that can actually heal them if they can make it happen of course the cosmos is not going to allow that because there's a much bigger narrative afoot but Sam is unable to see what John is actually saying here because honestly, John is not really saying it very well to Sam in a way that Sam can actually understand what he's saying because he's deliberately trying to not let Sam onto what he's saying. He's hiding the truth because no matter which thing happens, if they fail to save Dean or if they fail to be able to get their revenge on this demon, either way, Sam is going to be pissed about the outcome. If they fail to save Dean, he's going to be pissed at John for for letting his son down. If they fail to kill the demon, he's going to be pissed that he can't get his revenge, that he's still stuck in hunting, that this demon is still walking free who killed his mother and killed his girlfriend. So there is no good outcome possible here. One way or the other, a great bad thing is going to happen to Sam. And he just has to learn how to live with the consequences of what John chooses without even letting Sam know that he was making a choice beforehand. And he won't know for years to come, really, like, know concretely that John did make that choice. And it's agonizing. Sidebar here to mention that I-83 runs through Pennsylvania and Maryland. How did they get this car off I-83 and Bobby gets all the way there from Sioux Falls and he's an hour out. Like, no. I-83 is nowhere near any of what has happened in this episode. So, just laugh with me about Kripke's institution of the bad driving rules thing that I always attribute to Andrew Dabmore, but like, Kripke laid groundwork for that. (laughs) I-83 runs from Baltimore, Maryland to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And when you click on the Google Maps, when you Google search I-83, one of the only things visible in the tiny, tiny little zoomed in area is Kane and Sons Automotive, which I just think is hilarious in the context of I looked this up for a supernatural thing. But yeah, nowhere near where they are in canon. As Sam leaves to go meet up with Bobby to get the car, John hands him a list of ingredients that he asks for, and he says it's for protection. Sam turns and asks John, you know, about what the demon said about the plans he had for Sam and the other special children, and asks John if he knew anything about it. John just says no. After Sam leaves, 
we get a little musical chord letting us know that, haha, you've been caught, evil villain. And Dean is standing in the corner. Obviously, nobody can see him, but Dean is standing there. And he's got his arms crossed, and he's just judging John hard. He's like, boy, you know something. He just watches John lay there looking uneasy about the whole thing. Which is one of the reasons that I'm really distressed that Dean, of course, remembers nothing from his entire time out of body here. And he won't remember anything from it until years later, like season four years later. Everything that he experiences while he's out of his body gets wiped. He will not remember his suspicion of John. He will not remember what he has seen of how John relates to Sam of their arguments over him. It's important to remember that as we're watching it now to know, okay, Dean is not going to remember this afterwards because things happen in this episode. He has conversations with Sam or he overhears things or he sees things that he is going to have zero memory of. And Sam is going to know he has zero memory of. And a lot of these things Sam wasn't privy to either. So it's kind of important to remember who knows what, you know what I mean? And who forgets things they should remember. And here we get the first time Dean as a human being and his soul and his state of mind and body and being is paralleled directly to the Impala that Bobby's at the scrapyard with Sam looking over the remains of the car, describing it as being completely unsalvageable, you know, empty the trunk and sell the rest for scrap. Sam's like, no, if there's one working part, we can't just give up on it. You know, like Dean will want to fix it. And we know he will. He'll fix this car so many times throughout the series, but it's him putting himself back together. It's Dean's identity is summed up in the state of baby. I mean, obviously we know that this particular car remains scrapped for the rest of the series and they do pick it over for parts occasionally, but it is largely scrapped. I don't know if it was ever a working car, the one they crashed. Like, I don't think they crashed the hero car in season one. But they, because they've always had various states of decay Impalas that they've harvested for parts when they've needed to replace parts in the car because older cars need parts replaced and they're hard to come by. But everything about this car, even the engine, was destroyed, according to Bobby. So, Bobby gets what Sam is saying here when Bobby's like, it's not even worth a toe that Sam's not just talking about the car. He's talking about Dean and Dean's life. And he's putting his faith in the fact that Dean will get better, that he will be able to be well enough to work on this car again. And he will make the car whole again, just like he's going to make himself whole again. And the parallel is established that, Dean's state of being is paralleled to Baby's state of being. And in this instance, Bobby proves that he's a better dad than John because he gets it. He doesn't argue with Sam about it. He's just like, you got it. He humors him. He agrees to tow the car back to his scrapyard so he Dean will be able to work on it. This is when Sam brings up the list of ingredients that John asked him to get from Bobby. 
Bobby takes one look at the ingredients and is like, what is this? Sam tell, explains that it's for protection, and Bobby's like, these aren't ingredients for a spell for protection. And tells Sam what he thinks they're ingredients for. Yet, he gives Sam the ingredients anyway. He looks at this list, knows that these are ingredients to summon a demon, and gives Sam the ingredients. And Sam takes them and brings them to John anyway, knowing this. Put the choice in John's hands. Back at the hospital, John is sitting in Dean's room, just looking at Dean's body lying in this bed, waiting for Sam to get back. And Dean talks to him. John can't hear it, obviously, but Dean talks to him. You got to help me. You can't just let me die. You know, you haven't called a soul for help. Like, what are you doing? Please do something to help me. You're just not just going to let me die, are you? Dean gets angry here. He's like, I gave everything. I did everything you ever asked of me. I gave everything for you. And you're just going to sit there and watch me die. What kind of father are you? And of course, this is on the list of things Dean will not remember saying or not remember from this time. Watching John watch his body. And we know Dean doesn't. John is psyching himself up to face the demon. He, I don't think he really understands that he's going to have to trade his own life. But when he's asked, he does. But none of that matters to Dean. You know, John won't even tell Dean what's going on. But, I mean, he thinks Dean's unconscious. So, like, he can be forgiven for not talking to the unconscious guy in the bed and letting Dean have the scene. But poor Dean. Dean is distracted and he hears something weird out in the hall and he goes to look and something goes whipping past him. And of course, John didn't see it. Nobody else seems to see it. Only Dean can see it. He follows it. He chases it down. He realizes there's something weird going here. I need to stop again to point out how wild the signs in this hospital are. As Dean's running through the halls trying to chase down the thing he saw, we see a sign that says receiving and then the room across the hall says emergency. And then the room a little bit down to the left says storage. And then the next one down is the nurse's station. And then a little bit down from there is psychiatry. And at the top above all of them is administration. And it's just like, what kind of hospital is this? What is the layout of this hospital? I'm absolutely baffled by the fact that all of this stuff is just there on the third floor of this hospital. Like, okay, why is the emergency department on the third floor? That's just weird. So obviously these signs were placed for reasons. Like they had a reason to put all, they didn't need to put all these signs up. They could have just had doors and people would understand, okay, these are hospital rooms. They didn't need to put receiving and emergency and psychiatry and everything else. Like, these are informing us of what this scene is about. Dean is chasing a reaper who has the ability to alter his perception of reality. It's an emergency. He's still in line to be received by the reaper. I enjoy the commentary via the absolutely baffling hospital signs. <laughs> it's great. Dean passes a door with the sign above it marked chapel. And as he passes it, 
the Reaper emerges from that room behind Dean and zooms off. Dean enters a room. He sees the mysterious figure disappear into. There's a woman lying on the floor, ostensibly a nurse, choking to death, dying. Dean, can't, of course, can't yell for help. Nobody can hear him. And the woman just dies right in front of his eyes. Obviously, this is something that the Reaper is making him see. But it's interesting because the actress who plays this nurse will later play Karen Singer, Bobby's wife, in uh, two episodes much later in the series. And so it's... (laughs) How many times have we, you know, has Bobby had to watch his wife die? Well, he missed this one because... He wasn't at the hospital. He was at the scrapyard. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, she dies here, too. Sam returns to the hospital shortly after that. Dean's very worked up and very upset and distressed. Something's killing people in the hospital. Dean is trying to convey this information to Sam, who, of course, still can't hear him. And Sam is doing his broody, I know your secret nonsense that he does. And has his back turned to John and Dean is realizing, wait, there's something else going on here. Sam has other information that I don't. So he waits while Sam confronts John about the spell ingredients, not being for protection, but being for summoning the demon. Sam is justifiably irate with John for this. I mean, he still doesn't know why John's summoning the demon. He's like, why aren't you concerned about your son in there dying? And instead, you're just trying to summon this demon. It's all about revenge to you. And it's like, "Mm, Sam, no, he's ready to trade the cult for Dean's life. Like, that was never in doubt in John's mind through this entire episode that he 100% intended to trade the cult to have the demon save Dean. Yet he never tells Sam that. I mean, obviously, Sam probably would have tried to talk him out of it. But again, because it is a no-win situation for Sam, he either loses Dean or he loses his chance to kill the demon here. They may eventually come across something else that could be able to kill the demon. And, of course, we know they do. But, like, it's a long road. And it. Sam wanted it to be over. He just wanted to go back to his life. He wanted to give up hunting. And John wanted that for him. Wanted Dean to be able to go have a normal life too. And it's just like, that's not in the cards, folks. And of course, rather than explaining it to Sam, when Sam accuses him of just trying to get his macho revenge on the demon, John throws it right back in Sam's face. If you would have just killed it when you had the chance... None of us would be in this position right now. You know, John would be dead. Sam would have been his cause of death. But the demon would also be dead. John is not getting that the demon probably would have vacated the premises moments before that bullet hit. And just you would have been dead and Sam would have been responsible and failed to have killed the demon. Like, that's how this demon works. That's how all the yellow-eyed demons work. We will learn in much later seasons. But, you know, how many times did they try and shoot Dagon and ended up killing innocent people in the process? Like, lots. So, you know, they're, they're not exactly easy to kill. In this moment, John is letting his anger get the best of him. Sam is letting his anger get the best of him. And Dean is the one, again, even though he's just a ghosty Dean, 
he's caught in the middle and Swayze's a glass. But it gets Sam and John both to shut up, which, you know, at least you know, that's progress. After Dean has Swayzeed the glass and everything has gone quiet in the room, he begins to flicker. He clenches his fist against his heart like something bad is happening and he falls to his knees and John sends Sam out into the hallway to check out what the commotion is. And he finds Dean in his room crashing. The doctors are all trying to revive him, shocking him. He's failing. But Dean comes and he sees the Reaper trying to take him. And he tells the Reaper to stop. He grabs onto the Reaper and forces it away. But as he's wrestling with it, he says, I said, get back. And you hear it like echo in the audio track. But you also, they show a close-up of Sam and Sam's face as Dean is saying that. Almost like Sam can, he's blinking like, am I hearing that? The force of with which Dean said to get back somehow carried it through to reality that Sam could perceive. Nobody else did, but Sam did. The Reaper flings Dean away escapes again and Dean goes chasing after it again. Now that the Reaper has failed to claim Dean and Dean has told Sam, I, if I can grab it, I can kill it. Dean goes looking around and hears somebody yelling, can't you see me? Why won't you look at me? And finds this person because A, he's concerned that they may be in danger as well, but also, hey, somebody he can actually talk to. And oh, the irony of Dean having to explain death and the state that they're currently finding themselves in to Tessa when she's actually the Reaper and is manipulating Dean entirely. Everything Dean is seeing when he's with her is suspect because Tessa's body is not lying in that bed and the person mourning over Tessa is not really there. This is all stuff that she is making Dean see. All of the hallucinations, including the bloodied and gunshotted gentleman who in the outtakes tries to get Dean's attention, is likely not even real. Like the nurse who died on the floor, that woman probably didn't even exist except to be an example to Dean of Tessa showing her power to him. So Tessa asks, so does that mean we're going to die? And I don't know if she was just feeling Dean out, like trying to see where he stands, like mentally, why he's resisting death so much, or if she was instructed to play with him by actual death. We don't know at this point, like what, her instructions were and how she was supposed to handle Dean because we see her later in canon exactly how she reaps people and it's very hands-off compared and I mean that's Billy's phrase later on you know reapers are hands-off they they don't interfere and so why is she interfering so much what prompts her to veer off what is normal for a reaper that we know from all of the rest of canon to interact with Dean so heavily in this episode, especially in ways that he will not remember until their next meeting in season four, episode 15. 
this is not even conversations that Dean might ever remember specifically. He'll remember her and, you know, but we don't know if he remembers every detail from what happens in this episode ever, really. Just that he remembers her and remembers that he, from when he almost died. So it's interesting why she would be messing with him in his unconscious here. I appreciate the fact that she is. It tells us a lot about her as a character and about Reapers in general. For the rest of canon, they didn't have to bring Tessa back specifically, yet she's the Reaper that specifically gets connected up with the Winchesters and especially Dean for the rest of her tenure on canon. And it is another thing that I just connect up to Chuck interfering in the story and putting her there, making sure that she's the one that Dean gets to know. She's the incarnation of death that Dean gets to not befriend per se, but at least to have a real ongoing relationship with in on any level. The fact that it is the same person over and or the same character over and over is interesting. It builds this sort of mythos or between Dean and the concept of death in the show. Sam is describing his experience of watching Dean be resuscitated. He tells John he sensed a presence and it felt like Dean, like he was there. And yeah, he was. And Sam just barely picked up on the edges of that. Sam realizes though, that if he can sense Dean, if Dean is really there, present somehow, he might be able to find a way to communicate with him, which would be useful. As Sam tells him, John, he's leaving to get something. We know it's going to be the Ouija board. John reassures him that he will not hunt this demon until he knows Dean is going to be okay. He's promised Sam that just now. And we know John had no intent of hunting the demon at all. He wanted to deal with the demon. So yes, John is absolutely telling the truth. And I think Sam does take a little bit of comfort from that, from that flat out statement from John that he won't hunt the demon. And then we're back to Tessa and Dean. And Dean is impressed with how well Tessa is handling learning that she's a disembodied spirit and that she may or may not die. He's like, most people would be jello by now, but you're just dealing with it. And she's like, well, I was distressed at first, but like, what am I supposed to do about it? You know, it's just fate. And Dean's like, that's bullshit. (laughs) In the the CW friendly way of saying it's bullshit. This is the first time we get a fate versus free will. And have you always have a choice. You can either roll over and die or you can fight and you can keep fighting until you can't anymore. And at least that's a choice that you're making and it has nothing to do with fate. Dean cannot accept that it is fate for him to die on this day. Yet Tessa insists that she's okay with it because it is fate and she can't fight it. Obviously, she's the Reaper trying to convince him that he needs to give in to his fate, but... This is also a really good test for him and for her for when she comes back later, she will understand this about Dean. The concept of death in general is understanding this about Dean. And I can just picture OG death having some pizza and just watching this go down from the sidelines and just being amused by it. There's a code blue emergency over the speakers that interrupts their conversation. And Dean tells Tessa to wait there and he runs off 
just in time to see a little girl being taken by the Reaper. So now he understands it's not just a spirit that he's hunting in this hospital, that it's a Reaper because the the little girl dies. We go back to Dean's room. Sam has returned with the Ouija board and he asks Dean not to make fun of him for this, but he hopes they can communicate. And Dean sees what he's doing and is like, oh, God, no. <laughs> His first response is, I feel like I'm at a slumber party. But he participates in this. I just love the camera work. I mean, we've talked this scene to death on every level from just the cinematography to the way that it's acted to what is discussed to everything but it's just such a wonderful scene that one long camera shot where the camera goes all the way around Sam and Dean appears in the shot as it comes back around and shows him getting ready to sit down across from Sam and because we couldn't see him before because he was invisible to us but theoretically but the long camera shots and the angles and the just the way it's shot. It's like, gosh, I wish we'd had Kim Manners through the whole series. I mean, oh, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll just appreciate what we did get. Sam is very relieved when it actually works. And Dean is basically surprised that it works, but is glad we see Sam moving the planchette around and as the camera goes around them again, Dean disappears for when we're on Sam's POV, but he reappears as the camera goes around again. And it's just, God, the camera work is just so good, but it conveys so easily and naturally that, you know, reminds us that Sam can't see Dean. Sam can't hear Dean. That Sam's only information is coming from what Dean reveals with the planchette. It's not Dean's words that we see Dean say out loud. Sam never gets that, the full explanation. Sam is only making his own conclusions. He gets hunt from Dean. And he's like, you're hunting? And Dean moves the planchette to yes. We don't see him do that. We just see Sam's hands on it. But then by the time we come back around, we'll see Dean again. And Dean will be able to talk to us again. It's brilliant how it's done. Sam asks him several questions in a row, like, is it in the hospital? What, what is it? What do you, you know? And Dean's like one question at a time, dude. So he's pushing to beyond the capabilities of the medium of communication that they have available. Sam asks what it is that he's hunting. And Dean starts to spell out Reaper, but he elaborates for us. Elaboration that Sam cannot hear. Dean explains that he thinks it's killing people whose time's up and Sam puts it together and gets Dean, is it after you? And Dean pushes it up to yes. Sam says, if it's here naturally, there's no way to stop it. Like Reaper's going to reap. That's what they do. It's not being controlled by somebody. It's not being pointed at Dean. Dean is just hurt enough that it's time for a reaper to come visit him. He's going to die. This is like how it works. So there's nothing they can do to stop it. They can't break the spell binding the reaper to like they did last time Dean was going to die. Dean says, yep, you can't kill death. And we will learn 
yeah, you can't, you can kill death. You absolutely can kill death. I mean, we will see a lot of Reapers die in this show. There's lots of ways to kill Reapers. I mean, none of them that Sam and Dean know of yet, but we know of lots of things that will kill Reapers, including Death Scythe, including Angel Blades. The first blade will kill Reapers. I'm betting there's other things that I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head, but those are for sure. Those are at least three weapons we know of that will kill Reapers. So there are ways to kill Reapers, and we know that you can kill Death too, because Death dies several times in this show. So (laughs) not at all impossible to kill Death, but it is when it's season two, episode one. Sam's like, no, 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 no. There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way to stop it. Dad will know what to do. Sam gets up and goes looking for John in his room, except when he gets there, John's not there because John's already off doing John things. Sam comes back to Dean's room with John's journal and is like, well, maybe there's something in here. And I'm like, guys, wouldn't you have noticed this page back in season one, episode 12, Faith, when you were first learning about Reapers, wouldn't you have read everything that was already in that book about Reapers in that episode? Has new information appeared magically in the book since then? Did you all add some information? Are you just trying to refresh your memories because you forget some things about Reapers? It's one of those that that just how come they didn't know this information about Reapers being able to alter reality before? Is it just because that particular bit of information was not relevant to the previous Reaper because it was being controlled by somebody else? So it wasn't using its full spectrum of natural abilities to alter the people's perceptions of reality. Like, it wasn't trying to interact with them. Was this information actually in the journal and they just, it because it wasn't relevant to that particular case, they just didn't remember it? I don't know. But it's clearly delineated there on that page of Reaper lore in John's journal. Apparently, just they plum forgot about it because they didn't need the information until now. But now that they do have the information, it's very convenient for them to quote-unquote, rediscover it for our, our, the audience's benefit to see them discover it and learn along with them and all of that. But oh, sometimes I hate it when they get hit with the idiot baton because they should have really just known that. But again, it wasn't relevant last time. Whatever. They know it now. Meanwhile, John is downstairs in the boiler room in the spooky, creepy, gross unsanitary looking boiler room in the in the basement of this hospital setting up his little summoning sigil on the floor back in Dean's room even though John seems to have fled disappeared probably gone off to seek revenge in Sam's mind Dean is like Sam is still like furiously doing everything in his power to save Dean he's flipping through the the journal and Dean just smiles at him's like thanks for not giving up on me like Sam could give up on him, but whatever. It gives Dean just the amount of information he needed to be able to confront the Reaper. And since Dean's the only one who has this information about Reapers now, I mean, it's in the journal, they can find it again. But since Dean's the only one who has the information and he will not retain it because 
it's going to be memory wiped from him when he doesn't remember anything that's happened to him since he went unconscious. It's interesting that part of the information he can't remember is actual lore about Reapers that might come in handy later on, but never really does to the full extent that it is in this episode. We'll never see a Reaper totally mess with reality to this extent again. But as soon as Dean reads that, he realizes who the Reaper is and that it was Tessa all along. And he goes and seeks her out. He finds her sitting on the bed where she had shown him the illusion of her dying from her complications of her appendix surgery. It's just her. No more mourner. No more equipment or anything. Just her in the empty bed because it had all been an illusion. She tells Dean it's his time to go and he's already living on borrowed time. And as she reaches up and touches his cheek, there's a a high-pitched sound effect and Dean has a startled reaction to her touch. So something about her touch affects him. And we never really know how it affects him. Like, is it supposed to calm him or make him more complicit? Because it certainly doesn't. What was that touch supposed to be conveying? And I've still never really figured it out because a Reaper's touch is supposed to bring death. But we know Dean is already a spirit here and he doesn't die from the touch. So, like, what connection is she making with him here? It's maybe something that even she doesn't understand yet. We see John completing the summoning ritual down in the boiler room. And as he finishes, he looks around and is kind of unsure if it worked or not until he's interrupted by what appears to be a janitor telling him he's got to get out of there. He's not allowed in this in this place and he's going to escort him out to security or whatever. And John realizes it's the demon. The demon and John banter back and forth a little bit. The demon's taunting him like, you know, he brought back up, of course. There's other demons there that John could kill him, but he would die immediately by these other demons. The demon's like, did you really think you could trap me? And John's like, oh, I don't want to trap you. And then he lowers the colt and says, I want to make a deal. And that's when we begin to see what this long plan was and why John refused to tell Sam about it. Because, oh, my God. Everything about this is just so damn wrong, you know, on every level. This is just wrong. The wrongness just, bleh, so much wrong. We go back to Dean's room where Sam is alone with Dean's body, like on the machines. Sam's talking to Dean as if he's still there, but we know he's with Tessa somewhere else in the hospital and actually cannot hear Sam. Even if he was in his body, he wouldn't hear Sam because he's unconscious. But like everyone in this episode is saying things that the others should know, but they're saying it in ways that the others can't hear and won't remember. Like what Sam is saying to Dean here is you just keep fighting. You can't leave me here to deal with Daddle on my own or to continue on this hunt on my own. I can't do it on my own. I need you to be here. And Dean won't hear it and won't remember it because he didn't hear it in the first place. The things that Dean has 
said to John and Sam in this episode, the confrontation with John, John's never going to hear it because he didn't hear it in the first place. Even though he was standing right there, he didn't hear it. Dean was invisible to him, which kind of ironic, oddly. And then John, everything he's going to say to the demon and the fact that he's literally trading his life for Dean's. Dean is never going to know that. He's going to have to figure it out for himself over the course of the next half a season. And it's going to eat at him horrifically in ways that Sam will never understand. Well, he he might understand them after Dean sells his own soul for Sam's at the end of this season. But at least he knew in advance what, what had happened. Dean had no clue. He was just left with this aching hole in his chest this cold feeling, this horrible sense of loss that he he couldn't fill that void because he was resurrected by a demon. For crying out loud, it wasn't Tessa that even did it. It was the demon using Tessa's power to its own will. So Sam's been touched by the yellow-eyed demon, but now Dean has too in his own way. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Back to this conversation of Sam with Dean's body. Sam jokes a little bit, but then he gets serious and is like, you can't go now. We were just starting to be brothers again. And then the shot pans way out and you could see the Ouija board lying in the floor in the shadow of the window shades on the floor at the opposite side of the room from where they are. There's nobody sitting at the Ouija board. There's not, Sam's not trying to use it to contact Dean. Dean's not there to hear Sam's words. Tragedy. They were just starting to be brothers again, and Sam doesn't want to lose that. Sam is admitting that, yeah, maybe I don't just want to run away and live a normal life and forget about my family or everything again. I mean, maybe I don't want that again. Meanwhile, Dean's having an existential crisis while talking to Tessa. She's talking about him moving through the stages of grief here about himself. He's reached bargaining. He's telling her that he needs to live because his family needs him and they're at war and, you know, he's a soldier and he needs to continue fighting. And she's like, no, the war is over for you. You can rest now. You don't have to fight anymore. And we'll hear this again from others later in the series. Like Jimmy Novak is told, you don't have to fight anymore. You can rest now. So many people in this series who are about to die get told that and are like, no, I'm going to keep fighting. For Jimmy Novak, that means taking Cass back on. But for Dean here, that means, yeah, literally, he needs to keep fighting this fight because, well, first of all, he wants to. But second of all, Tessa's talking about this as being his fate to die here today. But we know that's not Dean's fate because, oh, Chuck's writing the apocalypse, all that, that is what the angels have in their books as Dean's fate. They went through so much to set all that up to happen that I don't think they would have let Dean die here, even if it had been his destiny or his fate to die here. This is more about Dean accepting that there is a war here and that he is a soldier in it and that he has a job to do and that he has a role to play. Now, don't those words sound familiar from later on in the apocalypse when he is supposed to play his role and do his part and say yes to Michael and let everything happen as it's supposed to, you know, fate finally coming for him. But 
it's okay because it's what Dean wants too. They have the same goals, right? I mean, I, I can hear all this in my head in Zachariah's voice saying all of this. But you have to go back and look at earlier season stuff as how does this make sense in the context of what we know will later find out was a much larger plan that was known before all these events happened because it had to have been known before for John and Mary Winchester's marriage to have been arranged by Cupid's like even before long before all of this this was known this plan Gabriel says from the moment the lights went on we knew it was always going to be you so like from the moment creation began the angels knew it was going to be the Winchesters like how do you walk that back to season one and season two and them being told, oh, you're fated to die here? Unless that's part of the test or part of the plan or part of the bigger story. So, yeah, this is how crazy I've been about this for years. Long before, we, you know, we had Chuck on the show, let alone Chuck is God on the show. So, yeah, there's a bigger plan afoot. And you have to take that into account when we go back and look at the earlier seasons. Now that we know that bigger plan is already in place and already activated in the background. Chuck's already writing his book somewhere. You know, he may not have gotten around to publishing many of them yet, but he's written and he knows what's going on. And he's begun to pull strings. And I think Tessa is one of those strings. Dean also tells her there's no such thing as an honorable death when she tries to tell him that he he got a warrior's death. And honestly, he was bleeding out in the backseat of the car and got hit by a tractor trailer. How's that an honorable death? And I'm, I'm with Dean. There is no such thing as an honorable death. It's just death. And his family's going to die because he can't protect them. And I mean... Yeah, everything dies eventually, but like to try and label it as honorable is just despicable here in this earliest part of the series in Dean's eyes. And that shouldn't change. And it doesn't change until the series finale. <laughs> when he's like, I always knew it would end like, th-. no, you, you fucking did, you dumbass. Where did this sudden 180 on your lifelong <laughs> sorry I'm I'm not gonna yell about it 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 we're gonna move on we're just gonna walk past this because otherwise I'm just gonna start hitting things because almost nothing makes me as angry at, at by these early season episodes is thinking about the season finale in relation to them especially in relation to Dean's relationship with death and figures of death in the show. It's just absolutely infuriating. And no, we're not we're not we're not touching that today. But Tessa does explain that yes, Dean does have a choice and he could choose to stay instead of going with her, but that he would over the years and over the decades slowly begin to become violent. He would become one of the vengeful spirits that he hunts there's nothing he can do to stop that from happening he won't be able to control it and he will just become a violent angry awful spirit 
that would be his fate if he chose to stay. He wouldn't be able to actually help his family. He would just be trapped forever, going slowly ghost crazy. Now we go back to John and his conversation with Azazel. He taunts John about the unseemly deed of dealing with a devil. And John's like, it's a good trade. Take the gun, take the bullet, bring Dean back to life. You don't care about Dean. You want this gun way more than you care whether Dean lives or dies. Azazel's like, yeah, Dean killed some people who were special to me. I mean, he didn't kill Meg. He just killed her vessel, but did kill the other demon. Azazel then taunts John about Sam, that Azazel isn't worried about Sam coming after him because he knows that John knows something about all the special children, that there's something about them that John knows that makes John believe when Azazel is like, yeah, they're not going to hurt me. Azazel says it flat out that John knows the secret about all the special children, but that he has not told Sam and he's been playing dumb to Sam. And it's true. But John says, yeah, I've known for a while. So what's a while? Is that weeks? Is that years? How long has John known what this demon did to them? It really brings suspicion back on how John has always related to Sam or failed to relate to Sam, how John has distanced himself from Sam and put Dean in charge of Sam instead of him and never even told Dean that, hey, he's got demon blood in him. And that's clearly part of the secret, at least that John knows, if not all that he knows. But still, it's disturbing that John has known this for, quote, a while. Hmm. And just failed to mention it along with everything else he's ever failed to mention to Sam and Dean that they might actually be important to them in the long run. And yet, no, he's just like, I'm going to handle this myself. And now he's giving up the gun, their only weapon against Azazel. And he will end up giving his own life because the gun is not a sweet enough deal for Azazel on its own. He wants more. He wants, he demands John lay down his life. John agrees without a second thought because it means Dean will live. That's his condition. He's like, before I do this deal, I'm going to see that Dean is perfectly fine. And then you can have the cult. John has now left them with no weapon against Azazel. Does he think he's taking his vengeance quest to the grave with him? And that as long as Sam and Dean have each other, they'll figure it out. Like, he knows there's a larger plan afoot here. He knows that Sam has some sort of power. He knows that Dean is going to be stuck with him. He knows that Dean may have to kill Sam. What does John know about the special children? You know, it's horrifying that he just lays this burden on Dean. And then without warning, without a, I had to trade my life for yours, son. I'm so sorry. I I owed you a better life than what you got. Now go make a good one. John just says nothing. He chooses to say nothing other than giving a final horrible order and then going off and dying without an explanation and Dean coming back to life without an explanation. Infuriating. 
I'm going to punch this man. So just after Tessa gives Dean the ultimatum, they're sitting down. She's like stroking the back of his head, like soothing him. He's quieted from his swagger he came into the room with and is beginning to accept. It looks like he's beginning to accept his fate, but we don't know what he would have chosen. She's like, gives him the ultimatum. This is your chance. This is you get you get to make one choice. There's no going back on it later. What's it going to be? He doesn't know where he would go if he was to go with her. Heaven isn't a concept. He doesn't know if he would go to hell. I, what would happen to him after death? But he knows what would happen if he would stay. Vengeful spirit, probably taken out by a hunter, and then going wherever burnt out vengeful spirits go. Before he can answer... The lights start flickering. Dean's like, well, what are you doing that for? And Tessa's like, I'm not doing it. And then the black smoke crawls up through the vent and crams itself down Tessa's throat. Her eyes turn yellow and the demon speaks and uses Tessa's body to heal Dean. In the next moment, Dean wakes up in his hospital bed choking on his ventilator and Sam is like, oh my God. The next scene is the doctor from earlier who was telling Sam to have a realistic outlook on Dean's chances of survival being like, probably he won't wake up. Now he's like, everything is healed. It's like he was never injured at all. And you, you must have some kind of angel watching out for you. And it's just like, wow. How many times do we hear that in the series before? And we actually see an, it's an angel literally watching out for him but in this case unfortunately it wasn't an angel it was a demon (sighs) doctor doesn't know that though but we do dean is surprised to hear there had been a reaper after him he doesn't remember anything from the previous couple of days of him walking around the hospital as a ghost except that he feels something very wrong in the pit of his stomach like he knows that how he got healed and woke up and has been made okay is very wrong. And then John walks in. We all know why Dean feels so wrong. Dean is in again stuck in the middle where Sam accuses John first thing out of his mouth. Where were you last night? John's like, I had some things to take care of. And Sam's like, that's specific. Like Sam even deserved any sort of an answer out of his father anyway, but like years of this behavior, it again makes it sound childish. And I understand Sam was like, Dean almost died and you weren't here for it. And it's like, John is just being stubborn, not explaining, well, yeah, Dean's only alive because I arranged for that to happen. I worked it out, you know, I, because of course they would know he made a deal with the demon that he would know everybody would know. And John doesn't want them to know, even though how are they supposed to not find out like, ah, there would be no plot of season two. If John actually just laid out the truth for them, (laughs) although it may have been a much more interesting thing to have happened, but 
emotional trauma and drama is interesting too, I guess. So here we are about to embark on this joyous journey of angst and despair. We chose this. I mean, I specifically chose this because I'm, I'm making this podcast and I have been choosing this over and over for the last 10 years to put myself through this. So yeah, it's really on me. It's my fault. (laughs) I blame myself for all of this. Sam asked Sean if he went after the demon last night and that's why he wasn't around. And John's like, no, I didn't. And he didn't. He made a deal with it, but he's not telling Sam that. And Sam's like, well, why don't I, why don't I believe you right now? It's like, Sam, you don't have to believe him. He's your father. That's like part of the parental code. Parents don't have to explain themselves to their children. This is directly affecting their lives. But I mean, holy crap, Sam. Like, wow. (laughs) But John's just like, can we not fight? Can we just not fight today? We know John has like, minutes left to live and he just wants to have one decent conversation with his children and not have his last memory of them and not have their last memory of him being them fighting over something petty that they can't change anyway so and the way that John explains this to them has Sam turn a 180 from Oh, yeah, I don't believe you at all, To Dad, are you all right? That's how out of character this reconciliation attempt was for John, that Sam was legit worried at that moment that there was something wrong with John and was concerned for his health and safety in that moment. So, like, even Sam is aware that this is not normal behavior for John. He'll get it in a few more minutes, but... For right now, he's just going to accept John's, yeah, I'm just a little tired. And then we have John's last words to Sam, which are a very politely delivered order to get him some coffee. It seems fitting in a weird and creepy and upsetting way that the last thing he says to Sam isn't a, I'm proud of you or you've never let me down or something like that, like he tries to tell Dean It's an order that Sam gratefully obeys. Like John's like asking for coffee. That's such a normal thing. And that's something Sam can actually do for him and not fight about it in a weird way. That's kind of what the two of them needed to begin to resolve their relationship was for Sam to just without arguing to just follow an order. There's the the whole irony of Dean being terrible at following anyone else's orders ever for the rest of the series. But Sam gets better at following orders from people. I mean, he follows Dean's orders, but he takes this one without complaint from John. And unfortunately, it's the last thing that John will ever say to him in John's lifetime timeline. John doesn't even attempt to hide that there's something upsetting him from Dean. Now that Sam is out of the room... Dean's like, what is it? And it's almost like, okay, now the adults can talk about the big bad thing. And John just tells Dean he's proud of him. He's always been proud of him. He's sorry that he laid as much as he did out on Dean for his whole life. 
going all the way back to when he was a child and John would come back from a hunt all upset or bruised or battered or whatever. And Dean would be the one to comfort him. And it's like, you should never have had to do that. And it's like, well, duh, so much for he tried to do the best he could, but it was never anywhere even remotely good to close enough. Even remotely close to good enough. That's what I meant to say. I do know English. The thing is, the comfort that Dean gave to John when he was a kid is literally the same words that he will say to Mary in his heaven flashback in season five. John says Dean used to say, it's okay, dad, to comfort him when he was messed up from a hunt. Dean uses those same words in his heaven memory of Mary. It's okay, mom, instead of it's okay, dad. Dean offering the comfort to the parent. He did that for both of his parents, and he never got to be a child because he always had to be the caretaker. And it is just, I, I, if that doesn't break you as a person, I don't know what would. Honestly, I'm kind of terrified of anybody who is not affected by that concept. John apologizes for having put too much on Dean's shoulders and for having forced him to grow up too fast. And then just as he's being forgiven and Dean is starting to realize that there's something seriously wrong here, John leans in and puts the absolute worst burden possible on Dean's shoulders. He doesn't have a choice anymore. He's got to tell Dean this information. He's only got a few minutes to do it before the demon is going to come and claim him. And he doesn't have time to really give Dean the context that would have helped him cope with this horrific burden that John is just dumping on him with no further information or you didn't plan this very well, man. You could have had like a backup plan like Elkins did with the cult and with the letter of information about what had happened. And if you find this letter, I'm already dead kind of thing. Like there wasn't even like a backup plan of information for Dean to find. John just didn't think it through or didn't want to burden Dean with it or didn't want somebody to accidentally find it before it became necessary because it's a pretty horrific thing to put in print. Oh yeah. Tell my one son to murder my other son. Like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, not exactly the easiest letter to write. But the fact that John just dumped this on Dean when he knew and he'd been sitting there for the, like the last day and a half, just staring at Dean's body lying in this bed, knowing that the only chance that he would have to bring Dean back would be to make a deal with this demon. Like a little bit of pre-planning here may have gone a long way, like towards not further traumatizing your terribly traumatized son. So John lays the worst possible information down on Dean. We don't know what it is yet, but I mean, we know what it is, but he drops that on Dean. The look of horror on Dean's face says enough that we know it's terrible. And this is just after Dean was concerned because John was being overly nice and overly complimentary and like, telling him he's proud of him and moments later the look of horror on Dean's face John just walks out of the room walks into the next room sets the colt down and it's like okay the next shot we get is Sam walking down the hall with the coffee for John thinking things are at least 
going to be at the same status as when he left the room a few minutes ago. Except he walks by to see John lying dead on the floor. They try to resuscitate him and fail. And that is how the episode ends. It's also the setup for the entire spiral narrative of sacrificing for your loved ones, for the people you love, just throwing your own life away because somebody else's is more important. Somebody else's means more to you. John sacrifices for Dean. Dean will sacrifice for Sam. And the little merry-go-round of Winchesters trading their lives for each other will begin. But also the big cosmic themes of free will versus fate. Having a choice. I've always said the worst thing they say in the show is I had no choice. I didn't have a choice. In this episode, Tessa basically says you always have a choice, but you can only make it once. And once you do, you have to live with that choice. And every choice has consequences. John chose to make the deal with the demon and he chose to sacrifice himself for Dean. And we don't know what Dean would have chosen because he didn't get to choose because the demon crammed him back in his body and forced him to heal and carry on where John is gone now. If he'd been given that choice, he would have said yes, but like he, he wasn't given that choice. John made it for him, but it is the concept that carries throughout the entire series. Team free will. We get to make our own choice. We get to choose our own life. There's no such thing as a heroic death. There's no such thing as, you know, an honorable death. That it's life is what matters. Life and living are important. And what happens beyond the point where you die, it's not life anymore. It's not freedom and free will. And I don't care what they say they remade heaven as. There's no free will if Kansas is playing a concert for you and all of your closest friends who are people who it's questionable how they even got into heaven, let alone the fact that they just happened to randomly show up for this concert. Okay, that just makes no sense. Why Kansas? Why not Led Zeppelin? Why not a band that Dean had admitted was among his favorites instead of the band that means the most to fandom? Like, why? Why? Us in the real world of the show where they make the TV show Supernatural. We're the ones who the band Kansas has the most meaning for in the show. That's our theme song, you know? But it's not Dean's theme song. It's not Dean's favorite song. He is like, yeah, it's a classic. But, like, it holds no special import or meaning for him within the context of his life not in the context of a show that we watch about his life. You see what I mean? There's a difference. So why? Why would Kansas, if they had free will, play this concert for random strangers? I don't get it. So explain how that's free will in action. You can't, because it ain't. It's weird. Chuck's weird fever dream or something. It's the only thing that makes sense. Anyway. It's enough rambling about the finale again. I'm going to do this a lot. I will always apologize for it, but I'm still going to do it. So (laughs) at least we know where we all stand. And we've met Tessa now. 
and we will see her again, obviously. Dean's relationship with death really begins here. He didn't have a relationship with the previous Reaper from Faith. This is the first time that Dean is confronted by a Reaper. And I think partially just Tessa's own curiosity, if you don't want to ascribe her actions to Chuck pulling strings to force her into the story here in this way. You can just look back and go, she knows that he's already defied death once. He's already escaped this fate once. There's got to be some professional curiosity there. If so, if the whole Chuck just controlled everything on that level, even if it's not like he stuck his hand up her and puppeted her to do this, but that like Lilith will come back and other characters will come back later in the series. He may not have been controlling them directly, but he certainly had created them to fulfill a specific purpose. And that's like baked into the characters as they exist for his needs. And the closer to human a character is, the more free will it has, the less he can control it. Like he can control the angels pretty well. But he really can't control people. So Reapers probably fall somewhere in the middle. (sighs) Anyway, that's it for the first episode of season two. Next week, we have an episode that everybody loves. Everybody loves a clown. Season two, episode two. I do not love this clown. I do not love clowns in general. This is the one thing that I will always side with Sam Winchester on. Clowns are evil and creepy and I don't like them. (laughs) They're just always smiling and it's like, dude, just that is so fake or they're freaky looking or they're sad or whatever it is. They, They have a static facial expression and that bugs me. I don't really like masks. So <laughs> clowns bug me. So we'll, we'll all cope with that together next week. In the meantime, if you want to chat, you can find me on Mittens Morgul on Tumblr or SPN George on Tumblr, or you can email me at mittensmorgul at Gmail, or you can join our discord server where we've all been falling behind on life and I haven't been talking there as much in the last week or two, but I am determined to get back to it more and to be more sociable. So (laughs) we'll see how that goes. Anyway, what did we learn in this episode? We learned that John can be sympathetic and on some level, but when given full context of his actions, it's really hard to let him have that bit of grace and and that little bit of, yeah, I know, but, you know, he was trying his best. You know, it's just, I mean, years of trauma and years of being horrible at handling this. And then he just takes himself off the table and takes the cult off the table, their only weapon against this demon that had been chasing his family for 23 of 24 years now he takes it all away from them and all of a sudden his boys are left without his protection that they have had unknowingly and unwittingly for the last however long he's been keeping secrets from them about the thing that actually killed their mother and the thing he was actually seeking revenge on and the thing that 
Sam and Dean have no idea what this demon has done to Sam. And John has just now left Dean fully in control and told him only enough to know to be horrified by the order and just John hoping that Dean would carry it out should he deem it necessary, but yet having no idea why. John clearly had some understanding of what this demon did to Sam as a baby, and yet felt no need to tell Dean any of it. Felt no need to tell Sam any of it. And it's Sam's body. Like, it's Sam who the demon did this to. I think he deserves to know. It might help him make better decisions in the future, if he was aware. It might have helped not have such a shitty childhood if he understood. And Dean could, like, be like, yeah, dad's freaking out about your blood demon blood again, you know. Like, it would have been a completely different, it probably wouldn't have been a show at all. But this is where the drama comes from. Is John having kept these secrets and now being dead and not being able to control what, what his boys find out from here on out and also not being able to answer for it. So I think half Dean's problem for the rest of the series is that he just wants answers from John. Like, why? Why would you do this? And why didn't you tell us? And why did you force me to have this childhood and take away my personhood and identity and childhood? Why? And answer for this. I demand satisfaction here. Dean realizes by season three, definitely, that, yeah, he didn't deserve to be treated like that. And he didn't deserve to be raised that way. And he gets to vent all of that. He gets his catharsis over it. He doesn't really harbor any ongoing, long-term ill will towards John like I personally do. But he actually had love for the guy and, you know, a lifetime of living with him and understood his faults and will gradually, over the course of the entire series, grow to understand why John made the choices he that to Dean the child were awful and unbearable to Dean the adult are, you know, I hate it, but I get it. And I wish he'd done it differently. And I wish he'd explained it better. And I wish he'd hadn't just left it everything like he did. But I get, I understand that, you know, how, how messed up he was and how, how it came to this. But honestly, yeah, he never really, I mean, he forgives him and loves him, but like has laid an awful lot of baggage down and just walked away from it. And good for Dean, honestly, because it beats the hell out of living into your 40s, feeling a toxic mess of hatred towards your abusive parent. Um, That's no way to live your life. Trust me, it's bad. Lay it down. Lay down the baggage, folks. Any hoodle. Join us next week for a clown. And we can laugh a little bit about Sam's discomfort with clowns and also be angry a little bit about Sam and Dean's frustration at John. And we can meet Ellen and Joe and Ash. Fun. Because we should have had all three of them for longer in the show. But, you know, whatever. They weren't allowed to have a roadhouse. They weren't allowed to have a hunter meeting place. Kripke was just like, nope, it's too easy for them to find information or see other hunters or not be completely isolated. 
So, no, we want to keep them completely isolated. They're not allowed to go to the roadhouse. They're not allowed to have those sorts of connections. We're burning it down. Goodbye. We'll only have the roadhouse for 20 episodes. Isn't that crazy? Not even a full season until the roadhouse is gone. Poof. Bye-bye connection to the rest of the hunting world. I mean, they do have it through Bobby, but that's not Bobby's primary point of contact for them. We'll talk about the roadhouse next week because right now it's super late and my voice is super going craggy and I'm about to lose it. So, good night, everybody. At least the thunderstorms uh, seem to be gone now. Too late for me to, like, I think they've stormed for a little bit of this recording, so hopefully can't hear thunder boomers through half of it. We'll see. Hmm. <laughs>